This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Welcome to From the Trenches, the podcast of the Association of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Division Chiefs. This is Susan Murin from UC Davis, and today we're here to discuss an important topic, Me Too in our disciplines. I would like to welcome our guests, Ann Dixon, Naftali Kaminsky, Zia Borak, Lynn Schnapp, and Anna Lamb. Can you each please introduce yourselves? I'm Zia Borak. I'm Chief of the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles, and I'm also President-elect of the APCCSD. And I'm Ann Dixon. I'm Chief uh, of Pulmonary and Critical Care at the University of Vermont and past president of the APCCSD. And uh, I'm Naftali Kaminsky. I'm uh, the Chief of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine at Yale, and I'm the current president of APCSD. Hi, I'm Lynn Schnapp. I'm the Division Chief of Pulmonary Critical Care, Allergy, and Sleep Medicine at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston, and I'm also the ATS Secretary-Treasurer. I'm I'm Anna Lamb. I am not a chief. I am an associate professor and fellowship program director at uh, Northwestern University. Well, welcome, everyone. Can you please tell us why you chose this topic for our first podcast in 2019? Naftali? Yeah, so we were really influenced by the extent of revelation of sexual harassment experienced by women in the workplace and in academic settings in healthcare in recent years. And as division chiefs, we really felt that we're in a unique position to affect culture and climate by signaling that sexual harassment is simply not acceptable in our communities. The division directors recently published a report addressing gender inequality in our disciplines. Why didn't you address the issue of sexual harassment in that report? Yes, you're right. In, in 2017, we held a gender equality forum at the ATS International Conference, and we had a in-depth discussion. Um, there was a report of uh, qualitative phone interviews with division and departmental leaders, which was led by Dr. Kristen Reichert and Eileen Larson. We also had a perspective on gender equality in academic medicine from Dr. Carol Bates uh, and an overview of recent literature on gender equality in medicine that was um, performed by Dr. Adipam Jenna. And the results and recommendations in that forum can be found in our 2018 Annals ATS publication uh, entitled Addressing Gender Inequality in Our Disciplines, a report from the Association of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Division Chiefs. You can also listen to it on a podcast um, pertaining to the paper, which is on the Annals of ATS podcasts, uh, Clinician to Clinician. As noted in our report, the panel discussed issues related to perceived disparities in gender climate, but we didn't talk about sexual harassment as we felt that this topic was so important that it required sole focus beyond uh, the scope of that document. Yeah. When we sort of read the recent uh, National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine on sexual harassment of women, and I really recommend to all the listeners to read it. You can get it on the National Academy's uh, website at www.nap.edu. Um, I recommend that you download it, read it. Um, one of the things that this 
report highlights is the importance of creating uh, of diverse, inclusive, and respectful environments in order to adequately address uh, sexual harassment. And one of the things that became clear to us is that we have to really need to go beyond just compliance to have a lasting impact. you know, the rules and regulations are important, but it is the grassroots that determines things. And we look forward uh, to today's discussion as our first step towards um, this important ongoing dialogue among division chiefs, pulmonary critical care, and sleep medicine. How we actually create these environments? How do we prevent and eradicate harassment? Great. Thank you very much. So there are institutional guidelines that that we all have at our respective institutions, uh, and this is a topic that certainly gets discussed there. So so why discuss it in this forum? Well, as you've said, if there are institutional guidelines, how come sexual harassment is still so pervasive? One of the things that stood out in the National Academy's report was that while clear guidelines were important, Explicit steps to create a culture and climate to reduce and prevent sexual harassment were just as important. Another important point of the report was the realization that many institutional policies were developed to protect the institution from liability rather than change the culture. We felt that as leaders in the field, we are uniquely positioned to influence culture change. And do you have anything to add? Yeah, um, I just want to emphasize one of the things um, that you said that was in the report. There's, yes, gu- guidelines are important, um, but we've got to take explicit steps um, to create a culture and a climate uh, which uh, prevents sexual harassment. Um, and this is where we see our role um, as the APCCSD. Uh, we think we're uniquely situated to facilitate uh, a discussion around the, the challenges um, related to pulmonary critical care and, and sleep medicine divisions, um, just like individual division chiefs are positioned to impact the culture of their own division. What we want to offer um, is the ability to share uh, experiences, best practices, um, and, and tools um, that have been found to be effective um, within divisions, um, especially in areas that, that are so important, um, such as sexual harassment. Nearly all of us are required to have mandatory training at our institutions every year, uh, in addition to having institutional guidelines. You don't think that's sufficient? So this is Lynn. Actually, the data shown that the majority of trainings, particularly the commonly used online modules, are actually not effective at decreasing sexual harassment. In addition, even if you get training, if the institutional guidelines and requirements for training are not consistently enforced, then you are not impacting uh, the behaviors. And clearly, the level of sexual harassment that is still reported also demonstrates that the problem remains a serious threat uh, and that the current mechanisms alone are insufficient to ensure a safe environment that prevents recurrence of harassment. Everyone's got a training and an institutional manual, but we're not always trained about when and how to actually intervene. Susan, any thoughts on that? Well, I think that's an excellent point. Our training all talks about what sexual harassment is and what behaviors we shouldn't do, but it really doesn't tell us what to do when we when we perceive it and how to have those tough conversations. Um, another consideration for 
creating an environment in which sexual harassment is unwelcome is depending on unconscious bias. Um, there may be situations in which a colleague is behaving in ways that may be perceived as harassment, but are unaware of that behavior and how it's being perceived. So let's let's move on a bit. Um, you you mentioned uh, data, Lynn, and of course we're all data-driven individuals. So what does the literature say about gender discrimination and sexual harassment in academic medicine? Uh, this is Anne. Um, well, the, the U.S. Equal Opportunity Employment Commission, the EEOC, um, defines workplace sexual harassment as unwelcome sexual advances or conducts of a sexual nature uh, which interfere with the performance of a person's job um, or, or creates an intimidating, hostile, or offensive work environment. Um, and sexual harassment can, can range um, from persistent offensive sexual jokes, uh, inappropriate touching, uh, posting offensive material um, on uh, a bulletin board um, or email. Um, sexual harassment at work is uh, a serious problem, um, and we acknowledge it can happen to both women and men. Um, Anna, do you have some comments? Yeah, I, I think I, I agree. The data are indeed very impressive. But unfortunately, they're really impressively bad. You know, according to a recent article published in the Journal of the Association of American Medical Colleges, while more women are in leadership positions in academic medicine now than ever before, the surveys demonstrate that sexual harassment continues in academic health centers. I mean, nearly every study reports that a significant number of women encounter sexual harassment in medicine. For example, almost 60% of medical trainees have experienced at least one form of harassment or discrimination during their training, and verbal harassment being the most commonly uh, cited form of harassment. You know, consultants were the most commonly cited source of harassment and discrimination, but also followed by um, patients or the patient's family. Uh, a recent report from Berlin, Germany, provides very alarming numbers, where close to 70% of the participants experience sexual harassment, including the subtlest forms such as uh, degrading speech and sexualized speech. And unwanted physical contact was reported in 22% of women in the study. Um, and unsolicited, unsolicited sexual advances, seeking sexual favors for promotional advantages, were reported by 2% of women in the study. I mean, this is pretty uh, horrible. So, Anna, wow. have, the, have, the, have the numbers changed over the years? Is there, we know if there has been a change? Um, well, Natalia, I think it's very difficult to determine since the reluctance in the past to report sexual harassment makes it difficult to um, make accurate assessments. Sexual harassment rates of 50% were reported as early as 1995. So it's hard to assess any differences, but what you might want to remember is that literally there are no studies that report no sexual harassment. The lowest rep numbers reported have been on the range of 30 to 40%. Title IX, the federal law prohibiting sexual harassment in educational institutions, was enacted 47 years ago in 1972. And the American Medical Association released its guidelines for establishing sexual harassment prevention and grievance procedures almost 27 years ago. That's unbelievable. You know, it's, it's really, you know, when I think about it, the idea is that people who try to save lives, cure disease, you know, train the next generation and have careers, actually have to work constantly in a hostile environment. And basically, it's, it's half of the workforce. It's just unacceptable. So 
Are there any ways or is there ways to to change this? Well, it, it, this is Anne. Uh, in, in our report, we, we, we talked about the, the many things that can contribute to an adverse uh, gender climate um, where harassment can happen. Um, for example, 70% of uh, female versus 22% male K awardees uh, perceive gender bias. Um, 66% of women, 10% of men report experiencing gender bias in, in, in their academic environments. Um, gender bias in hiring is, 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 is very common. Another striking example is how women are introduced. Um, a recent study showed that women were introduced by the professional title for uh, Grand Rams in only 49% of cases, um, whereas men were introduced uh, by their uh, full professional title in 72% of cases. You know, Anne, um, this is Anna. <laughs> Given how strikingly bad the statistics are and continue to be, why do you think this topic has been addressed earlier by the division directors? You know, our, myself and the junior faculty have noted this topic's been avoided by leadership. Um, well, um, that's an excellent question. Um, we were slow to address this because I think we were anxious about taking it on, um, and, and I don't think we fully appreciated the full extent and impact. I have to tell you that um, many senior women today were first, the first to be promoted into leadership positions in their division, um, and we purposely didn't want to make waves. Um, we often felt as though we were representing all women in the profession. Um, if, if we failed or were perceived as unreliable, um, for example, if we took a lengthy maternity leave, we, we thought it could impact other women's chances of being promoted. Um, we, we wanted to fit in. We didn't make waves. Laughing off minor indignities and uh, inappropriate comments um, was a, a strategy for, for survival and success. So this is here. I'd just like to add something to that. Um, it may not be commonly known, but unbelievably, even senior women experience gender inequity and bias, and both subtle and overt forms of sexual harassment. In terms of climate, we are often the only woman in the room. Our voices are frequently not heard, and we're still excluded from many of the networking opportunities available to men. For these reasons, I think we've been struggling to advance or maintain our own careers. So we're coming late to the realization of how important it is for us to fix it for generations coming after us. I also think we are just realizing the power in numbers if we all unite to affect change. Well, thank you. So given that, what do you think is the role of the PCCM division chief in creating a culture uh, that demonstrates respect, inclusivity, equity, um, and creates a division in which the types of behaviors we've discussed are not acceptable. Uh, well, this is Anna. I'll, I'll start with that. I, I think the chief needs to set an example of treating all faculty uh, and trainees as, as, as fellow professionals. Um, I, I think the chief needs to emphasize to the faculty that their trainees look up to them. And so behavior that's acceptable and, and appropriate among those of the same academic rank can be interpreted quite differently if there's a professional difference in level between the two individuals. Um, I think an example of this is hugging um, as a greeting um, 
can be unwelcome if there's a significant power differential uh, between um, the two people. Um, and uh, by the more junior person, it, it can be um, perceived as unwelcome um, and harassment behavior. Yeah, do you have any other comments? I agree. Division chiefs are, of course, bound by institutional policies and in most cases do not form them. However, they have significant influence on their faculty and mentees. So paying attention to diversity, being transparent, encouraging civil communication, and paying attention is critically important. In addition, we need to be very conscious in our hiring practices to ensure that we recruit a diverse faculty. Given that pulmonary and critical care medicine is traditionally a male-dominated field, this can sometimes be a challenge unless one actively looks for female applicants. Uh, I agree with both of you, and I think that uh, chiefs have an important role in setting the cu uh, culture of respect, inclusion, and equality. First, you actually have a huge effect on communication discussion in the division. You pay attention. Are faculty meetings, rounds, uh, communications, are, are they professional and respectful? Every now and then, I'll, I'll go very concrete. So when we discuss a heated topic in faculty meeting, I will mention to people a very simple rule. Make sure that the person that was talking has finished. Wait a few se seconds, allow a few seconds of silence before you start. This is simple, but has a huge effect because it's been shown that women and junior faculty are most frequently cut in in the middle of a sentence. The same thing, you set the times of conferences. This is within the control of the chief. I do not allow meetings that end after 5 p.m. because later meetings hurt disproportionately mothers and young faculty. And this is simple and within the authority of a chief. So there's other things. As a chief, you have an impact on fellowship rank, on hiring, and making it clear that diversity is valued has an impact and you know it has an impact regardless if the chief is a man or a woman just be open about it and in places like where i work at yale the chiefs actually control pay you can actually make gender pay equality happen uh, and the last thing i would like to to mention because we have to be specific with regard to harassment you can make it clear that you will make sure that complaints will be handled with respect to privacy, university regulation, but with extreme urgency and determination. And I really think that, you know, your message, you're close enough to your faculty that they'll get it. What do you think, yeah, Natalia? Yeah, I, I, I think that, you know, in general, the faculty do understand that the chief cannot share confidential information. However, if they trust their chief, it's because there's been a history of transparency and non-favoritism. So the best way to increase trust is to be transparent about the considerations that you discussed um, about your decision-making and provide information in a timely manner so that we can create an atmosphere of trust. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think this also demonstrates the need to create structures and reporting processes beyond what is currently mandated by Title IX. In response to the National Academy report mentioned earlier, the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine are in the process of creating an action collaborative around sexual harassment to engage with academic centers around the country in order to develop and implement best practices. Thank you. 
So has any of you observed particular challenges, obstacles, or behaviors when addressing a sexual harassment situation that you feel are specific to a female division chief versus a male division chief? I mean, I guess I'll jump in there and say, I feel that historically I've been more likely to hear about these things um, because I think a lot of the young women feel comfortable speaking to me uh, and have brought things to my attention that they did not bring to the attention of, of my uh, male peers. So I think that, um, I mean, it's, I guess it's an honor uh, to have that information shared with me, but obviously presents a challenge in, in addressing it. Anyone else? So I've I've had a situation where um, there were some issues around harassment within my own division that affected some of the women, and in some ways I actually found it very difficult to deal with because I was a woman too, and even though I took things up my chain of command, I encountered a lot of resistance until we actually filed formal complaints in order to make it go away. So I think the problem is pervasive. And as women division chiefs, we may face some particular challenges in being able to represent our faculty well. So I think we need to be aware of that. And that's something that, again, we need to address with a culture change and um, more women leaders. If I may jump in, that's actually as the man in the group. Um, I, I really think that the presence of women division chief has a huge impact on the environment. Um, you know, you don't always hear things about, as a man, but, but even more than this. So Linda Nui was my second in command until recently and vice chair of our Department of, for Clinical Affairs, taught, taught me when I enter a room to count the people based on gender. Um, and once she mentioned it, I could not help but notice it. I still notice it all the time, which is in so many meetings, she was the only woman in the room. And this is very different from my faculty, which are, you know, more than half of the participants are women. And I can tell you that the atmosphere is different. The openness is different. And the chances of things being unpleasant are very different. So we definitely need to find a way to increase the numbers of women in leadership because this will have a sea change in culture. Great. Thank you, Naftali. So what are the expectations from early career faculty of their chiefs? So this is Anna. Yeah, I'll I'll give um, kind of my perspective as someone who's recently um, early career uh, and still considers herself that, um, as well as my position as a fellowship director. You know, I think you know at the the early career faculty and trainees expect their chiefs to create um, an environment that's diverse, inclusive, and respectful. Um, and uh, this environment cultivates respect and civility from all members of the division. So it's really important that the chief models this behavior that is expected and tolerated in the workplace. So the younger members really want their chiefs to just call out inappropriate behavior so that everyone in the division understands that harassment on all levels, not just the most egregious behavior, is unacceptable. You know, the early career faculty and fellows are sensitive to their chiefs demonstrating transparency and accountability. And the lack of both really undermines the ability to create an environment that seems safe, supportive, and fair. Um, and then I, I want to note that, you know, as chiefs, 
denying that sexual harassment and gender bias exists at your institution or in your division because there have not been any of the blatant incidents that um, has caught national attention really contributes to a sense of a hostile work environment. So the chiefs really need to be proactively aware of the insidious nature of uh, gender bias and sexual harassment. Yeah, uh, I couldn't agree more. Do you think there's a generational difference, not just in the expectations of the chiefs on this topic, but in sexual harassment? Yeah, um, you know, this is Anna again. I I think there is uh, a generational difference in the willingness to tolerate it. I think, you know, uh, the younger generation really find um, uh, that they they want their chief to just be more proactive about it, and and they uh, want more awareness about what constitutes inappropriate interactions. Um, And I hope this awareness really will translate into more inventions and and then uh, prevention so that we don't have to intervene. I think our junior faculty and trainees are really the most vulnerable given the power imbalances in these situations. So there are definitely these additional concerns um, that they take into consideration. Thank you. So does anyone want to provide an example of a situation they faced and how they handled it? Yeah, this is Anne. I can can tell you about one I dealt with. uh, we were at a meeting, and I, I encountered one of our trainees in, in, in tears. Uh, and I managed to get out of her that she was uh, uncomfortable with her mentor's behavior. Um, so the first thing I did was was get her to, to a safe place where, where, where she felt comfortable and, and we could talk. Um, I then contacted uh, HR at my own institution. Um, I, th- I think we're obligated to do that um, for advice on how to proceed. And they contacted uh, both individuals and went through a, a confidential um, investigation. Um, and it was ultimately determined uh, the behavior did not reach the level of, uh, of sexual harassment. And it, but, it, but it was a very hard process for, for all concerned. And I think it, it could have been avoided if uh, we're all better trained um, with uh, more social awareness of how behavior that is acceptable between um, individuals at the same professional level subject to very different interpretations if there's a significant difference in age um, or rank between individuals. Uh, we, we all need better training in this. Yeah, I want to mention our experience at the Yale School of Medicine as an example of actually what I strongly believe is, in, which is the power of grassroots of courageous faculty. We had a relatively famous case. I will not mention names or anything. You can look up Yale sexual harassment in the New York Times or Washington Post and find the details. Um, basically, uh, a cardiology chief five years ago was found guilty of uh, sexual harassment. After some back and forth issues and protests from faculty, he lost all of his leadership positions and stayed at the institution. His and Dow Chair was removed because the donors didn't want a person who has been found guilty in sexual harassment to have a Dow Chair. This summer, the university decided uh, to reinstate his uh, Dow Chair. And when the name news came out, uh, uh, the response of faculty was unbelievable. Uh, faculty organized sent emails to the dean, the president of the university. They organized, uh, several women in the faculty uh, have organized a a public petition in which I think close to a thousand signatures 
were obtained by faculty and alumni. These were public signature. This was a public letter. Think about it. Women and men, many of them junior or without tenure, took a risk. You know, you could have retaliation and signed an open letter challenging the administration and requesting uh, uh, action. And it was amazing. The significant pressure from faculty had an impact and the dean basically took away that endowed chair. On that day, I actually wrote a message to my faculty and said that it was my proudest day at Yale because we all know that administrations may make mistakes or may have wrong policies. But when you see your faculty organize, break with fear of retaliation, conformism and self-interest and actually take an action, they can drive change. They can turn policies from dead ink rules that we live by. So in some ways, this is why I'm so passionate about this discussion, because if we empower ourselves and our faculty to be active, regulations will be effective. I would say that peer faculty are probably the best preventive measure against harassment. And I really believe, and I have no doubt about it, that Yale is a really better place now for everybody not only for women, because of its women faculty. Well, thank you. Uh, I will say back when I was a program director, um, I faced a situation that, that was not sexual harassment uh, per se, um, but I had a faculty member come to me and say that uh, he and one of our female fellows had started dating um, and, and had to figure out how to manage that situation didn't. Uh, degenerate or have the potential to degenerate uh, into a problematic situation. Um, you know, unfortunately, was able to rearrange schedules such that there was never a supervisory relationship. Um, but I, I was very grateful that they came and let me know about the situation so I could act upon it because it otherwise really could have been a problem. Um, and we don't have institutional policies that explicitly uh, prohibit faculty from dating um, trainees um, as long as they're not directly supervising them. I think different institutions have different policies on that just because it has the potential to be so messy. Anyone else uh, with an example or should we move on to the next question? Okay, I'll jump ahead then. So what tools would you recommend to monitor your division and to ensure a culture of inclusion within your division? And what tools to monitor your own behavior as a chief. Anne? Um, well, I, I think having this as a topic at a faculty meeting um, or a retreat is a place to start conversations. Um, our job is to increase awareness, uh, let people know about how to access training programs uh, that are available. Um, I think uh, nearly every institution has training programs related to this. My own behavior needs to be monitored, and I actually think the annual faculty review is a good time for uh, the chief to ask the feedback on uh, how they're doing from, from individual faculty. Uh, I think most institutions also have uh, surveys and uh, 360 uh, evaluations, and, and they, they can be helpful too. Anna? Yeah, I'm going to jump in, and I'm, I'm going to give um, a, a little bit of credit to Naftali for inspiring um, what we're doing. And that we started training our faculty and our, our fellows, our, our trainees, together as a group in social justice, in microaggressions and uh, unconscious bias, 
and bystander training. Because um, I think this is a problem that can't be addressed unless everyone is on the same page and works together to create a safe climate. Tell me a little bit more about the bystander training. I haven't heard that particular phrasing, Anna. Yeah, so this is, you know, a way of empowering your peers, empowering people who are around you to intervene. So it's not upon you as the person who is suffering the injustice or the uh, the harassment, but to really, you know, empower the community around you um, to, you know, intervene and say that not that behavior is not appropriate. You know, this is this is not something that um, we um, we should tolerate. So it's not just on the chief, it's not on that individual person, but it's everyone around them. Naftali, Great, did you want to share you. anything about yours? Um, what we found is that people, m- most of us have, you know, we know what's wrong, but we have not been trained to intervene. And we've not been trained to intervene in cases that are not clear cut. So basically, we did these simulations in which you suspect that something, and, and we may come back to it a little bit later, that when you suspect that something wrong is happening, you, you basically have almost a script to provide support for the potential victim and to speak with the person you think is wrong. And I deeply believe that you could eliminate a lot of the unpleasantness and microaggression in the patient's room, on rounds and presentations by implementing, you know, a concept of basically what we may call, you know, 200% accountability, so 100% you're responsible for yourself and 100% you're responsible for your peers. Thank you. Anyone else? This is Lynn. I wanted to follow up on that um, in terms of a specific tool that I've used. When um, when I was a fellow, we the women fellows often felt like our voices were not being heard at meetings. We would say something, have an idea, it was ignored, and then one of somebody else at the meeting would repeat the same uh, idea, and they would get credit for it. Uh, so the women with actually a number of the men got together and we decided as a group that we would support each other. And if Anna had a great idea that she talked about and somebody else mentioned it as well, that we would go back and say uh, that that was a great idea that Anna had um, and make sure that we enforced uh, each other actively. Great. Yeah, the other thing that as a division chief is our responsibility is to make sure we review salaries continually to ensure gender equity, to make sure that we ourselves uh, don't suffer from unconscious bias in promoting our faculty, in appointments to committees, um, promoting junior folks for uh, awards and nominating them for all opportunities. So that is within a division chief's uh, wheelhouse. Zia, anything to add? I think to follow on from what Lynn said, implicit bias training is important for everyone, not just leaders. They tend to bring in consultants who just train the leaders and nothing ever permeates down into the ranks. Um, And to reiterate what Lynn said, I think that actively promoting women to leadership positions And exploring further when they turn down professional opportunities is important because I know some of my 
junior faculty will come to me and discuss with me, should they do this or not? They're busy. They don't want to take it on. But I think it's really important to encourage them to step up if we are ultimately to change the numbers and the culture that in turn enable harassment. Thank you. So what recommendations would you make if you were presented with a work environment that seemed to enable harassment? This is Anne. Um, well, I, the most important thing is, is, is prevention. Um, harassment does not disappear by itself. In fact, it's more likely that when a problem is not addressed, it's going to get worse uh, and become more difficult to remedy as time goes on. So I, I think focusing on prevention is absolutely key. Uh, to be quite frank, usually this is not at the level of the chief, um, but if your institution doesn't have uh, anti-harassment policies and procedures, um, I would develop and uh, think about anti-harassment training for, for, for staff um, and how things are going to get reported. Uh, make it clear that this is a workplace where harassment will not be tolerated. Um, provide education and information about um, harassment um, on a regular basis and uh, provide protection support for employees who, who feel like they're being harassed. Uh, make it absolutely clear that discriminatory jokes, you know, posters, graffiti, emails, photos, and so forth are, are completely unacceptable. Um, and provide a mechanism for addressing sexual harassment in a confidential and sensitive manner after a grievance has, has, has been filed. And uh, as uh, Anna pointed out, uh, bystander intervention uh, can be really important. So uh, explain to people uh, what bystander intervention is, and, and this is all our duty. Now, Tally, did you have a... So, you know, uh, one is personally, and speaking as a man and not as a victim of harassment, I would not, I would refuse to work in an environment that enabled harassment against women or actually against anyone else for that matter. You know, this is the last decade of the 21st century and frankly, institutions that enable harassment should not exist. So I would fight for change or I would leave. If this was a place I was interviewing, I would not take the change. I would like to tell it mostly to my fellow men, because again, we're, the less, we're not the victims, is staying without responding when others are being harassed is simply not an option. It's actually collusion. Now, you know, the first thing I would do is enforce adherence to all institutional policies and extend it to areas within my control. So for instance, I would have, as I do, uh, stated goals for diversity in recruiting faculty, fellows, leadership, insist on gender balance and talks, leadership, and gender pay equality. And I would be really public about it. You know, my faculty know that I deeply care about creating an environment that empowers equality and disincentivizes uh, prejudice. They know that I'm deeply aware, and this may sound a little exaggerated, but this is really, that's the way we should put it. It's a terrible damage that prejudice and discrimination cause. And it really pains me to think that even in our best societies, the most advanced societies in human history, up of to 50% of the members, women, experience prejudice and dis discrimination all the time. Doesn't really matter how privileged you are. So lastly, regardless how, of how progressive you think you are, everyone has a implicit biases. Sometimes you do really do not need notice 
as a man, when you are being microaggressive, when you're being dismissive, uh, when you're, you know, thousands of years of prejudice take over. The only way that I could think of of dealing with it is really encourage an atmosphere of courageous authenticity where all members feel safe to actually tell you. So again, I'm really fortunate in my section. I have many uh, very powerful women as faculty and some of them every now and then we're in faculty meeting. I sort of feel that I was a little bit wrong. I will ask them afterwards. Sometimes, you know, I'll apologize. And I think it really helps because in some ways, in general, I, I believe that, you know, in leadership, you have to be able to express, you know, that you're vulnerable, that you made a mistake. But on this topic of gender, the strongest message you can provide when you say, okay, I actually made a mistake and I'm aware of it. Um, so I, I really think that this is um, important, but I'll reiterate my, my first point. Nobody at the 21st century at this stage should take a job in an institution that systematically enables um, harassment. So, Naftali, this is Lynn. I I would say that's, that sounds like an ideal state, but the problem, as we've stated, is sexual harassment is, occurs in over 50% of work environments, and it's not realistic, particularly for junior faculty, to either leave their position or not accept a prestigious position uh, because of potential harassment. I do think as we have a responsibility to take on leadership roles and to make changes to ensure that all of our members, faculty, trainees, staff, students, find themselves in a safe environment um, and that we have the ability to influence, not only do we have the ability, we have an obligation to influence our environment. And we need to make sure that we are open for reports of inappropriate behavior uh, and that we also make sure we report it to the appropriate uh, uh, venues as indicated. Well, if I may have to make it clear, I draw the distinction. There's a huge difference between many of our institutions that have policies. They have been maybe lax. They may have a hostile environment, but they don't really are enables harassment. There's a place that, doesn't, that basically enables harassment refuses to act on that. Um, many times you're not going to implement change. And the best thing would have been if these places would have been empty of employees. And sometimes that's the only way to induce change. Um, but but I, I completely agree. And I said it also from the point of view of a man. Definitely no blaming the victim. And it's clear that the victim is many times is not in a position to leave and actually should not leave. It's the harasser that should be kicked out. I've heard people talk quite a bit, and I guess it's important to, to emphasize the role of, of the uninvolved observer uh, in stopping a behavior by calling it out. Um, and as a division chief, I think people seeing uh, you responding on their behalf can make it clear that you won't tolerate those sort of actions and can change the culture in a favorable way. 
Zia, anything? Yeah, I think along those lines, we need to work actively to create an environment of inclusion. We also need to send a message that all forms of harassment will not be tolerated, while recognizing that many of the reporting mechanisms in place are archaic and date back to 1972 statutes, and they're operating to enforce the law rather than supporting the people involved, be they male or female. Again, I'm encouraged by the National Academies Collaborative, which hopefully will extend acceptable practices and focus on prevention, as well as review and work to change current legal statutes that emphasize compliance and punitive measures rather than prevention. Great. Does anyone have an example of a behavior that may not be immediately evident as harassment, but that results in an uncomfortable work environment? Yeah, um, sure, it's Anna. I'll, I'll share something when, when I was a fellow. Um, a PI, a principal investigator from another division, would come to the lab whenever I was working alone, and we would make uncomfortable remarks. I mean, there was frankly nothing illegal about his behavior, um, but it was certainly unwanted and um, made me fearful of working alone in the lab. Um, you know, I, I think this type of event is much more common than those more overtly sexual harassment incidents that get the national attention that we all can agree are completely unacceptable and, and are frankly illegal. Um, but I think, you know, the, the incident I described is something that um, a lot of trainees share. As a leader, as a division chief, if we witness any of this, those type of scenarios, um, it's our responsibility to bring it up and discuss and make sure all, all participants understand what appropriate behavior is and making sure, particularly for the vulnerable uh, person, that they feel safe. Um, and even if you're unable to change a specific behavior, I think it's very helpful for the fellow to know that you are supporting them, that you are working and helping them. Yeah, this is Anne. I mean, I really feel like as a division chief, you actually have to take action here. I heard Anna using terms like she was uncomfortable, she was fearful of working alone in the lab. Um, so this was creating for her a hostile work environment, um, and, yeah. and that's something we're obligated to intervene with. Yes, absolutely. I mean, when we see something, we are obligated to do something Yeah, and make sure we create a safe culture um, for our members. You know, the other well, thing that I would like to add, add to that is that um, in the scenario that, that Anna described, if you're aware of it, I think there's things you can do. But remember that we are operating in a culture where frequently people at the bottom of the totem pole are afraid to come forward. So I think one of the things that we can do is really encourage everyone, but in particular junior people, that it's a safe environment and this type of thing should be reported to the chief. Yeah. yeah so I actually want to mention something from my experience which actually was relatively simple, so, so similar. So again, as a chief, the difficult thing is that you rarely hear about things like this. Actually, when I was more closer to the lab as the center director, I dealt with a very similar case. It wasn't the woman that complained, but actually another postdoc that came to me that I should, and basically said, you should take a look. This guy is behaving like a creep. And so I went, I spoke with the woman, um, 
she actually obviously was disturbed, but didn't feel there was anything to complain about. And I sort of got the feeling. And I sort of decided to, after a brief discussion with our admins, with our ministers, I basically discussed it to speak with the other person, um, who of course denied anything wrong. But what I told him is one is that regardless of his intentions, he's making somebody else feel uncomfortable. And basically, this should stop. And he's not welcome in my lab after hours. And I, what I made is actually a few times stayed a little bit later through the lab in the evening and basically just look. And it never happened again. But that actually was one of the inspirations for me to try to develop something about the bystander intervention and what do you do and how do you import, uh, empower peers to report and help each other. Because again, leaving it on on the person, on the victim, many times is, is frankly unfair. Yeah. So this is a good segue. I'm going to provide a few other scenarios, and I'd like you to discuss how you as a division chief would respond to them. Um, I brought up one earlier, but I'd be uh, interested in hearing your feedback. How about a faculty member dating a trainee? This is Anna. Actually, I, th I think that happens <laughs> not uncommonly. Um, you know, we're, 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 we're all adults. Um, you know, trainees are frequently in, in their 30s or, or older than that. Um, and I think the way that, that you approached it, just make sure that they're not in a direct uh, supervisory uh, position. We were actually in a situation where one of my faculty member, um, you know, her husband went to medical school pretty late. Um, so he was a medical student, and then he was a resident here. Um, but but we we dealt with that, you know, making sure that um, the faculty member was was never in a supervisory position. I, th I think that's what you've got to do. It it sometimes can be more complicated because even if the two people in the relationship are not in a supervisory role, it does create a potential uh, environment where the other fellows or the other trainees may yeah. feel um, that they are uh, the special treatment uh, is being given to the the person in the relationship. So it, it really affects more than just the couple. It affects the whole culture of the the work environment, and that has to be taken into consideration. Sure. You know, another scenario, and I think data supports this, is when the patient is the harasser. So how would you respond to a patient making inappropriate comments to someone on your team if you were present? I think that happens all the time. Um, <laughs> I think uh, many of the women here are very familiar with, with, with that situation. I I, I, I think you have to be, you know, gentle with 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 the patient, but that you you need to uh, perhaps privately go go back and and say, you know, this is making people uncomfortable. You you you, you can't do this. Um, but it's a that's a very delicate situation that comes up all the time. Frankly, I dealt with that literally last week out at the. The VA hospital, I had a 92-year-old man ask me if I would get in bed with him. <laughs> um, and, and it was interesting, the male fellow on my team 
uh, was the one to really call out the behavior and, and say how creepy it was and unacceptable. Um, so, yes, that does happen all the time, even to those of us who are older. Um, anyone else? Any other uh, examples or um, input on how you would respond to these common types of scenarios? Um, this is Zia. I mean, I think they're all tricky and sensitive, but I think ignoring them is not an option. Um, so provide if, whether you're a bystander or it comes to your attention in a different way, the important thing is to actually deal with it either yourself or through other people. But um, letting people know that they will be dealt with um, goes a long part towards creating trust around this as opposed to just ignoring it, which... I have certainly seen at my own institution where ratcheting things up to higher levels actually did not make a difference. So in closing, on behalf of the APCCSD, what do you recommend that division chiefs advocate for as a next step for addressing sexual harassment? Anne? Well, I, I'm proud of us because I think we've uh, made a big step for us, which is actually um, to initiate a public discussion and make clear that um, the APCCSD wants to have a public discussion about this. We'd like to state that we see a critical value for engaging in national dialogue about sexual harassment uh, with our residents, fellows, faculty, institutions, and explicitly state that our expectation is zero tolerance for uh, sexual harassment, uh, regardless of the name or academic status of the uh, perpetrator. Uh, one is I really feel fortunate to have the opportunity to actually participate in this process. Um, as many of you know, we have been developed uh, being the division chief's toolbox because one of the things that we figured out that actually there's no rules, guidelines, or instructions for how to be a chief. And one of the things that first thing we did was actually uh, guidelines on gender equality uh, that we published. We also have a recent paper on leadership that was published in the Annals of ATS, and we are working with others. And it's actually interesting, beyond the guidelines, could we actually try to work on a real practical chief's guides, listening to what we discussed today, that there were very concrete elements. So what do you think, Zia? You're, I'm... I'm done in May. You're the next president. Would that be something interesting? Um, I think that's really an important thing because in the field there's a lot of um, uh, statements and, and perceptions without actually um, concrete action plans. So I think that that is something that we really should focus on. Um, to me personally, I think based on my years of experience as a woman in a leadership role, the most important thing is preventing harassment rather than punishment when it occurs. And that requires a culture change, both top-down and bottom-up. Sexual harassment training as mandated by legal statutes, as we've said, is not helpful. In the end, we need to create a climate of zero tolerance that empowers women, promotes women, and creates more women leaders in a supportive environment. And I think pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine division chiefs are ideally positioned to change things by being aware and becoming aware, if they're not aware, of the particular challenges faced by women and being very conscious of trying to change the environments within their divisions. Great. Thank you, Zia. Um, been a great discussion. Um, 
time to wrap things up. So um, I'd like to thank all of the participants uh, today for joining in the discussion and for their candor around this difficult but timely topic. Uh, sexual harassment in pulmonary critical care and sleep divisions is, is clearly a subject that needs further conversation, both by the APCCSD as well as by individual PCCSM divisions. Um, I'd like to tell our listening audience that uh, there are some references available that were cited during today's discussion, and you can visit uh, www.thoracic.org backslash professionals backslash APCCSD uh, to see those references. On behalf of the In the Trenches podcast team, we look forward to more dialogue about how division chiefs can collaborate and foster best practices um, and practical recommendations to create open and transparent work environments in the Me Too movement era. So thanks again, everybody.